Today on our show, we're going to review a film that's got the best ensemble cast of a film that doesn't have the words Infinity or War in its title. We're going to talk about sequels that nearly got to the light of day but just got slammed shut to become part of the ethos of the films that never happened. And finally, we find out if Frank has a big shadow overhanging on Claire in House of Cards Season 6. In a cloud where there are already too many film podcasts, you have to ask yourself, what's the harm in one more? Two ordinary men armed with unqualified opinions. Talk filmy to me. Hello, welcome to the Talk Filming to Me podcast, a film podcast about news, entertainment, general pop culture. It is the podcast that if it did have a series of sequels, it'll be titled along the lines of The Way of Podcast, The Podcast Bearer, The Podcast Rider, and Podcast The Quest for John. Anyway, speaking of the latter, that leads me to my co-host for this evening. You may know him as John, I know him as Deska, I also know him as a guy who I ran away from when we were about seven years old for him to go form an amazing computer game career and a podcast legend that is john how are you doing buddy i'm so good thank you for reminding me of my past uh successes of um yeah how are you i never say how are you flinty you always say how am i i want to know how you are you know what, John? I'm doing. I'm doing pretty chipper, mate. Um, we got a load of reviews actually on the podcast recently on iTunes, and uh, I just want to thank everyone that's been commenting on that. And um, yes, I admit I do sound a bit desperate at the end of the last podcast, where I was just like, "Please leave a comment. Please leave a comment." But I do appreciate the feedback nonetheless. Um, speaking of like putting a message out there, I wish we were American, John, because we should be encouraging people to vote at the moment, shouldn't we? Well, we should do. Although the day to do it was today, and the podcast is probably going to go out with about an hour left to vote but if you haven't i hope you feel of a serious uh, amount of shame and guilt and if you have <laughs> then give yourself a pat on the back you've done your civic duty well done the world is watching make good decisions america that's all i've got to say and if we edit this podcast a day later and the election all went tits up then i for one welcome your new insect overlords and that we should move on straight away to our review so our review this week um we sent uh, one of our our deputants to go to a press screening of widows a young and upcoming film critic called adam flint and here's something he pre <laughs> recorded earlier i think the kid's got a bright future anyway enjoy you have no idea do you what did you choose not to know your husband stole two million dollars from me this is about my life this is about my life you may be forgiven for looking at this week's podcast title and going, hmm, I haven't heard of that film, which, to be honest, is a crying shame. If you look at the cast involved in this film and the talent behind the camera as well, you think, how the hell is this film come out in such a whimper in terms of marketing promotions? But anyway... Uh Widows, let's just talk about that cast first of all. Viola Davis, Michelle Rodriguez, uh, Colin Fell. We've also got John Bathro, there's Liam Neeson, uh, there's uh, Elizabeth Debicki, there's Daniel Kaluuya. Oh my God, the list goes on and on and on of amazing talent, as well as behind the camera. So this is directed by Steve McQueen. You may know him as 12 Years of Slave, the director. He also is the co-writer of uh, Gone Girl, but also is able to boast of the triumph of this film on his CV. Widows is essentially a heist movie at its core, dealing with the repercussions of a shootout that's gone wrong at the start of the film. Basically, four thieves have a shootout of police and end up dead. Their widows, uh, called Veronica, Linda, Alice and Belle, have nothing to do with their, their husband's criminal histories or, or wrongdoings, but have been roped into a heist and chased up by a gangster who basically is who's owed a lot of money from their, their departed husbands, and they form a plan to try and get some of this money back. And what better way than to pull off the heist that their husbands couldn't do, and basically they form a team to pull off the heist. Although this is a heist movie, this isn't the, the classic Ocean-style uh, heist movie. This is very much a stylish thriller. Lots of tension. In fact, you could easily in another world see this being a TV show, and there's a reason for that, actually. This is based on an original TV show, ITV commissioned a long time ago if you could believe it but this film very much stands on its own two feet viola davis is definitely the mvp in this she gives such a powerhouse performance she always does amazing gravitas and she can add a she can really keep a scene serious but she can also add a bit of humanity to it as well she carries a dog around this film uh, a lot of the time the dog is absolutely fantastic i'm sure that there's a there's gonna be lots of memes from that going forward very good very good memeable dog 
But dogs and memes aside, let's talk about the cast itself. As mentioned, absolutely stellar. Some amazing names on this. The the dynamic between the wives in this film is interesting. There's some healthy tension. There's some conflict. There's some camaraderie in it to boot as well. Um, I also want to give a shout out to the action in this. Um, you wouldn't necessarily, from the trailers, understand how much kick-ass action is actually in this film. But it ties in in a very nice way, the way it's brought together. There's an interesting twist in the third act, um, which I kind of saw coming a mile off, which kind of left... Not a bad taste in my mouth, but made it quite predictable. Um, again, no, nothing against the, the whole film's the narrative. I really enjoyed this. It's a shame that people aren't shouting about this one from the rooftops a little bit more. Um, I hope to see this ensemble cast put back together, actually, in another film. Uh, I don't know if, if it would go along this tropes or if they go do something else, but I think Viola Davis is absolutely amazing in this. Her rise is keep it keeps on going, so hopefully more of the same we'll get from her soon. So from this, I'm going to give it a score 4 out of 5. It's a good recommendation, definitely the film of the week. And uh, yeah, I think it comes out in the UK on the 6th of November, I do believe. Um, so it is out this week. So yeah, if you're struggling to pick a film, this is your film for this week. Widows for out. If this whole thing goes wrong, I want my kids to know that I didn't just sit there and take it. I did something. guy's got a bright young future um anyway so there you have it four out of five widows uh, a great ensemble cast a really interesting sleek um depiction of the heist movie based on an itv uh, show back in the day how random it becomes a hollywood blockbuster they're getting desperate now flynn <laughs> anyway should we crack on with news before we get too desperate news jim cameron i may uh, have a go at this guy from time to time apparently he knows how to tell a film or two so i can't really dismerge him that much but anyway he announced um his slate of avatar movie titles we've talked about this for a while now he's got a few in the can in terms of films that he's planning he's actually filming two of them back to back at the moment then taking a break for a year and then filming the following two uh, this is taking up a lot of everyone's time in terms of the cast all the returning cast are coming back to it they've signed uber long contracts Tracks, so the rest of their lives are taken up this film and here are the titles so um the, the first sequel to avatar is going to call avatar the way of water i can't help but feel that they've they've somehow done some love story where the blue monkey has sex with a fish but anyway that aside um the sequel to following that will be called avatar the seed bearer i'm sure that doesn't sound uh, dodgy at all to anyone uh, the third film is going to be Avatar, the Tolkien Raider. Um, you know, the, those big birds they were flying. I think they were called tokens anyway. And finally, uh, the final film is going to be called The Quest for Iwa, which is, the, if you remember, your Avatar fans out there, that was the uh, the god, the, the, the god of the planet, the planet uh, Iwa. And um, it's going to be a quest for that. So, John, what's your, your take on this? Is this a bunch of sequels no one's asking for? Sorry, is this... They've announced the names for four films. Yeah. Avatar. Yep. This is... And the same cast are going to do it. Surely it's about 14 years old now. <laughs> yep. What's going on, Flinty? This is bonkers. <laughs> I think James Cameron, uh, unfortunately, or for better or worse, is allowed to do whatever the hell he wants. Uh, the guy has made... Has he got dement? Is he okay? I think he. I think he just needs someone to have a word with him. Maybe I don't know. Um, <laughs> I think these are the sequels no one's asking for. Avatar has kind of become the butt of some jokes over the last few years. Um, I personally really enjoyed that film, but is it the cultural mile, uh, milestone that, that Dave Cameron thinks it is? Then, oh, sorry, James Cameron. Then I'm. <laughs> I'm not sure. We don't want to talk about the legacy of David Cameron. Let's <laughs> steer off politics for this podcast. But. Um, I mean, James Cameron has a body of work that any director would be envious of. But when he looks back and thinks of, oh, what could I make four sequels of? The last on the list surely would be Avatar. But we've known this news was coming for a while. Um, nothing about those titles particularly excites me. But I will say Avatar was the first film I ever saw in 3D. Um, and I was a skeptic. And it did actually kind of turned my head a little bit and I was like, actually maybe 3D has a future and that was the film that really uh turned my head but I mean as far as story goes it, it's just the same story we've seen hundreds of times isn't it it's Pocahontas so um I I yeah I'm not too excited but um you know we like to give everything a chance Bohemian Rhapsody, case in point. <laughs> we were wrong about that, Flinty, last week. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I, I'm with you. I'm, I'm not too 
excited about these these films. Um, I think James Cameron spent the best part of the last five years just basically moaning in the media about other directors, and uh, and this is his attempt to try and reclaim his crown as being the the big man on top. And he might do. Who knows, right? Every time we've laughed at him and we've said it will never work, people told him a Titanic movie was pointless. That made a buck or two. Uh, people ripped the piss out of him for investing so much time and money in 3D technology. It actually did become the cornerstone of a part of cinema for a period of time, for better or worse. Um, he also can can move out of his own comfort zone. True Lies. I absolutely love that film. And that's, that's a Cameron movie. And he doesn't traditionally write comedy movies at all. But that film's fucking funny. So, okay, I will give him props where he deserves it. I think this is a classic case of I admire the artist. I think just the dude's a bit of a douche. But I'm only basing that on the comments he's made in the media over the last few years. So, obviously, I don't know him. But um, anyway, we, this podcast, reached out to Avatar, um, literally the, the Twitter handle, to try and confirm if this is true or not. They have declined the comments. So the only reason why any media outlet <laughs> ever says, oh, we've reached out for someone, it's so they can put the state, they can put the phrase they declined the comment to add some form of severity <laughs> or, or disparity to to the situation they're trying to suggest trying to suggest the fact that they haven't commented is a comment in itself when really they've got better things to do probably not in this case of course, oh, of in course. this case we're a reputable news organization they knew exactly what they were doing when they saw our <laughs> comment and decided not to comment and uh we've got our eyes on you okay if you don't get a five-star review from talk filming to me you're finished Anyway, let's not let's not uh, wax ourselves off too much. So let's talk about The Walking Dead, um, classic TV show, one of my favourites. Um, been going now strong for a number of years, and it's ninth season. Obviously, we knew Andrew Lincoln. We we didn't break it, but we we were part of the media outlets that reported on it when it was coming out. Andrew Lincoln was leaving The Walking Dead, and uh, last night in the UK, I know it was a few days before that, uh, was. Um, Andrew Lincoln's swan song as as Rick Grimes on the TV show. And um, what a way to, to go out, first of all. I don't want to spoil the TV show. It goes out absolutely amazingly. And uh, if unfortunately, the next bit of news is probably going to be a bit of a spoiler. So fast forward about 20 seconds if you don't want to know. But basically, after the end of that TV show was aired, AMC have announced that that is not the end of Rick Grimes. In fact, we will continue to see him. He is going to be in free, that is right, free movies about the character. It's going to be set in the Walking Dead universe. It's going to contain none of the original cast. It is literally Rick on his own on this big global scale story. John, Walking Dead, did that ever pass you by or what did you enjoy it? Passed me by, mate. It's one of them. Can't start can't start it now. Can't. It's it's too far in. And you've just spoiled spoiled it for me, so <laughs> well, uh, yeah, maybe we could do a pod another time about the best uh, series to watch with Walking Dead to get yourself up to speed. But um, but anyway, I'm I for one am really looking forward to this. Andrew Lincoln is an amazing actor. I think he's what he has done with that character over nine series is an absolute body of work. And uh, and I'm I think they've somehow managed to not cheat fans out of an ending whilst at the same time giving them what they want which is more more of the stories of Rick and how he continues on so that's kind of cool anyway something which I'm not kind of happy with is that Deadpool 2 absolutely loved the film we gave it a, a good review on talk films I think we gave it a 4 out of 5 and said it was definitely up there nearly as good as the original but bear in mind the original was such a surprise uh, package it was going to be really hard to top that now, 21st, 20th Century Fox with Disney have decided that they are going to do a PG-13 cut of Deadpool 2, and they're going to re-release it over Christmas. Um, they've taken out some of the more adult-themed scenes, and they've re- they've refilmed. They've actually gone and refilmed stuff for this, and it's going to be called Once Upon a Time in Deadpool. What's your take on this, John? <laughs> I genuinely hadn't read this news, but it's kind of weird. It seems like a weird thing for Ryan Reynolds to want to do, or is it something that he's just agreed to do and kind of going along with it? Because Deadpool, at its heart, without his vulgarity, I don't know. It just seems like that's that's the hook. That's the the beauty of Deadpool is the ridiculous, cartoonish vulgarity of it. But um, I can, I'm willing to be proved wrong. Maybe it's nice. I mean, bringing kids can't watch Deadpool. Let's face it. Um, but it's it stands up as a superhero movie, just like any others. So uh, maybe it's nice. But I will say, just re- make sure you are putting the right one on. 
I'm sure you'll find out pretty soon if you leave <laughs> it on and the kids are watching it and uh, you put the wrong one on. That could be uh, that could be fun. I'm sure there'll be a few stories over Christmas about that. I'm looking forward to seeing the results. But my my concern with this is, first of all, the character itself, like I said, lends itself to being an R rate, uh, being R rated, and I also believe that. Um, there's more than one flavour of, of story to tell and what made Deadpool stand out in a world of, like you say, maybe too many superhero movies is the character it was very fourth wall breaking. It was based it was Ryan Reynolds and Deadpool. Like you can't you can't distinguish the difference between them. It, they're basically one and the same now. And Disney, uh, I don't know if this is money men trying to go, hmm, actually, if we make this a PG-13, this could go from being a $600 million movie to a billion dollar movie. And then all of a sudden we lose the essence of what makes the character. Now, this is a one-off, just eight, like you said, just to open it up to a, a newer generation. Great. As long as it, as long as long if we get a Deadpool 3 or a X-Force movie, which is what's kind of in the plan at the moment, as long as that continues the course of being what the character's about, which is being vulgar, being R-rated, being an 18, which is what makes this character part of the reason why it's got such a legacy, why it was able to be made in the first place. So, um, yeah, if Logan has taught us anything, um, is that A, that you really can get upset about the idea of Hugh Jackman dying, but also that people really want to go see these sort of films and that it can be a beautiful art form as well. So let's not discount that. Let's let that continue in its own trajectory and let the PG-13s continue in theirs. But I will hold judgment until I see it. I just hope it's not so successful we don't get R-rated movies in the future. I don't think there's any risk of that. Cool. Well, I'll tell you what's not uh, something that's not at risk, John. We mentioned it uh, last week, and you mentioned it earlier as well, is that Bohemian Rhapsody, surprise package for us. We really rate this film. Uh, we gave it a five. Um, I know there's lots of different comments on this. Uh, look, I don't want to argue with fans or the community on anything like this. Uh, you're completely entitled to your own opinion. Um, the only thing I'll say is review the film you see, not the film it could have been. Um, and we reviewed what we saw on screen and we had a fucking good time. And a lot of other people did as well. This film made $50 million in its opening box office weekend, which means it is on trajectory to easily recoup its money that it's invested in this and then some. I think this is going to be a two, possibly even a $300 million, uh, box office take um, when you add global and everything else on top of that. So bully for them. Yeah, I'm really intrigued. I saw some interesting news. The Rotten Tomatoes... Audience score, 94%, agrees with us. Uh, but the average critic is 6 out of 10, 60%, which I found really surprising. Um, so I read a couple of the reviews, and I think they're kind of a bit snarky, trying to suggest that it's not important, it's not trying to say anything important, it's overlooking the... But I don't think it has to. Um, I think that's an unfair criticism of the film. And not every film has to. It can just be a celebration of a band or a legacy. Um, and that, I think it did did that really well. Not every film has to say something culturally or politically. And I, yeah. I think it was a bit of snarky, snootiness from um, less reputable uh, critics, to be honest, Valenti. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Look, at the end of the day, what is this? It's entertainment, okay? Don't get me wrong, there are some amazing movies out there that are cultural milestones that have helped aid a movement and really opened up our eyes and made us a better generation of people as a result for this art existing. Bohemian Rhapsody is probably not that film. Bohemian Rhapsody, like you said, it's a good time. It's just a great celebration of the band and a great celebration of the works. Yes, there's lots of other things this film could have been. I even mentioned, you know, I remember me and John were talking towards the end of last year about how this could be a real film about uh, about gay rights and about the ability to to be uh, to open up about yourself in a time where AIDS was just starting to emerge and all this sort of stuff. And you know what? It was none of those things. Yes, it glossed on it, but it, it didn't. It focused more on on the music side of things, and there's nothing wrong with that, okay? If you want to get your feel of that side of things, then go do more research. Go go pick up a book or go read a, go watch a documentary or or go find out something else. You know, not everything has to be, uh, a, like you say, a in-depth uh, warts and all expression. This was just a, a good time, and we'd stand by that. Anyway, moving away from that. So what's quite interesting is the podcast medium has been doing very well. Obviously, people like us have started to appear and clogging up your ears as much as possible, but storytelling has become a really interesting uh, 
mean in this uh, development. So you think about stuff like Law, the podcast, which is about um, urban tales that's been picked up by Amazon Prime to make into a TV show. Um, Marvel decided to make a bunch of uh, specific podcast stories. And the first one they done uh, last year was, I think it was called like The Long Good Night, and it was a Wolverine story. And uh, it's been so successful, they're commissioning that for a second season. Now, I... I'm aware that this isn't the first time this has been done. If you go on Audible, there's lots of stuff like that available. But this is actually one taking properties which we're used to seeing on the big screen and telling them through the medium of podcasts for free. And I wonder where that's going to go. Um, I'd love to see The Dark Towers done in a sort of spin-off podcast series maybe or something like that. That'd be kind of cool. Or I, d- I don't know. But John, what's your take on this? Are you happy to see podcasts becoming more of a mainstream way of telling stories? I love it because I, I have to drive a lot for my day job. And so I listen to a lot of podcasts. Obviously, you can't watch a movie on the road. Um, I think it's amazing. And I, I also think it relies solely on a good story because there's no visuals to help so i think um yeah i think it's a really good thing if let's cut out the uh deadwood as it were and uh see where the good storytelling is i love it as a medium i think that's great got lots of audiobooks on the go oh john you're setting me up for a segue there i love it so speaking of deadwood (laughs) did you ever watch a tv show um no i don't think i did no Nah, to be honest, it passed me by as well. Um, but apparently, it's really good. Like, there's only like three series, like series of it. But apparently, it's really fucking good. Um, but anyway, that has been commissioned as a film, like a real movie in the works with the original cast. And uh, yeah, a lot of people are hyped about this. Like I said, I'm, I haven't seen the TV show, so I can't comment. Other than I know it won a load of awards back in the day, and it was quite a, a topical cultural thing in terms of people like cowboys swearing and and violence so why not put down a tv show apparently you don't need to have seen the tv show to enjoy the film it's got shane black in it i fucking love anything with shane black in so so i'm i'm quite hyped for this but i'll tell you something which also came in the news last week and um, this dropped literally after we we done our podcast which is always fucking annoying <laughs> but there's actually going to be a sequel to gladiator um coming out did you hear oh, this this is bonkers how can you sequel gladiator <laughs> Is this too sacred? It's one of my favourite movies of all time, I have to admit. Uh, but, I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm excited. I'll watch it. I'm just a bit nervous. You know when a film, a sequel makes you nervous? I think this makes me a little nervous. But bring it on. Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about sequels in our feature later on. But um, And this, uh, yeah, like I don't know if it's, if it's untouchable. I just think it's, it's really hard to... Keep the narrative going, A, when your main guy dies, but also when um, when so much time has passed. And don't, Gladiator really did push the envelope for visual effects. That Colosseum, like, they had to make that of computers back in the day when computers were very expensive and there wasn't much about. They had to invent the technology which would eventually become a cornerstone of most uh, films so yeah fair play to him uh, mr ridley scott is back involved um as you expect him to be which is great russell crowe is attached as well um I, russell crowe i love him but he hasn't kept in the breast of shape um is he gonna be able to reprise the role in a way saying that the guy's such a good fucking actor he could probably pull it off even if he was ridiculously overweight and and really old because he can just somehow be so convincing so so maybe i don't know and um, let's cautious optimism yeah let's leave and it there. Ra- joaquin phoenix uh, he one of the best villain performances in cinema for me playing uh playing a villain in gladiator um obviously he's dead as well now so i mean whoever fills these <laughs> boots have absolutely massive shoes to fill or massive gladiator yeah, sandals shall we say there we go. Anyway, that's your news for this week. Streaming gems. You know, Francis warned me about you. I'm not going to be told what to do anymore, Doug. Not by you or any man ever again. Guess which kind of people I'm done suffering. Every punishment that history will surely visit upon Claire Underwood will be exactly what she deserves. House of Cards. Uh, obviously, it is one of the first on-demand shows that Netflix produced as original content. They landed the big guy in Kevin Spacey, and it was a smash hit for a long time. Um, it's actually in its sixth season. And let's acknowledge that little elephant in the corner, that he done some bad things 
and was completely removed from the TV show. In fact, this all came to light when they were about halfway through production of the sixth season. They decided to pause, gather thought, decide what to do, and the best action they decided, obviously, was that Kevin Spacey should definitely not be part of House of Cards season six and to start from scratch from that season onwards. That is why we have got a reduced number of episodes. I think the number finished at eight. And Claire was going to take the helm. Robin Wright, got. I hope she got a massive payday. And that she is here to lead and be the main cast of this show. John, coming into this, were you hyped for this or were a bit disappointed of how it's come to an end? I am definitely still hyped. Yeah, cautiously hyped, I think, because I love the work of Kevin Spacey. And I love his character in House of Cards. I think the first five series has been uh, amazing. I'd say it maybe peaked. I mean, it's been fairly consistently brilliant, I think. Um, but maybe it feels like it's r- run its course almost. But I'm kind of—I was kind of excited to see how it went because obviously they've written out uh, Frank Underwood's character and Robin White Wright's character. Uh, is taking the helm and I've watched the first episode so am I going to get everything ruined for me Flinty or is this a spoiler free <laughs> well this is going to be spoiler free so I'll basically give the premise I've, I've binge watched this and basically it's the sixth season obviously when we last left House of Cards Frank was pretty much left literally high and dry and he was about to lose the presidency to Claire who was about to be sworn in and um, he demanded as part of him stepping down that he would be pardoned as well as Doug because Doug at that point has been locked up for the confessions of a bunch of crimes i.e. if you've watched the previous seasons you know exactly what I'm talking about now House of Cards picks up a short period of time afterwards you don't know how much but I'm guessing roughly six months Frank has passed away and that's that's not a spoiler because if you watched any of the promotional material um, there's been lots of famous scenes of Claire standing by his grave and obviously it's been well communicated that Kevin Spacey has no part in this show whatsoever going forward and that is true. Kevin Spacey is nothing to do with House of Cards from episode 601 onwards. Frank Underwood on the other (laughs) hand, his presence is felt in pretty much every scene for the first few episodes, I'd say. So basically, the premise, the synopsis for the series is that Claire is trying to gain power whilst uh, trying to unravel some mysteries that Frank has left behind. There is actually a corrupt family sitting behind all the power and corruption, and she is trying to battle off the tropes because a lot of people are smelling blood and they're going for the jugular in terms of the political corruption going on behind the scenes. I won't go into much more detail than that because if anyone watches the TV show, they kind of, I think, I've told him all they need to know from that perspective but um, if you've not seen this before then you know, obviously start from the beginning work your way up I'm going to be honest it kind of peaks from season at season two for me um, I always think the journey's far more uh, indulgent than actually when they get to where they need to but that being said uh, John you've watched the first episode the, let's call it the pilot because it's kind of like a reboot to an extent what was your take from that first episode it was really interesting I did enjoy it quite a lot I like the new take um, I'm intrigued by the rest of the series, but yeah, there were, I mean, Frank Underwood is completely in it and it does sort of beg the question. They've obviously written Kevin Spacey out. He's gone, but every time he's mentioned, which is every other scene, your his face comes into your mind, Kevin Spacey's face, because he's been the character for, you know, six years. So it's, uh, it's an interesting one. It's like, have you really written him out? Um, so... Uh, but yeah, I'm intrigued and I liked the first episode and obviously there's a lot of mystery about how he died and I think that's all kind of, that's the main thing that's intriguing me at the moment, obviously, and you probably mm. know the answer to that, so don't tell me, please. <laughs> don't worry, like I said, there is some mystery as uh, as to what happened in Frank's last uh, last few days on this earth and also about... What happens as a repercussion of that? He has a will. Um, he has he has uh, things to be dealt with. He has crimes to be answered for. And this is the fallout of that, which is kind of disappointing. I, I kind of thought, if you're going to write out Kevin Spacey, then you should be looking forward rather than looking back, which I feel like Claire is, is, is too busy bogged down with the past to be able to focus on the future and all the things that are going on around her. Here's my problem with um, the show going forward, is that, the reason why it works is that Frank was basically the devil. Okay, he was the worst of the worst. He was able to 
compartmentalise any humanity to, in in favour of his goal, obviously being the president and trying to trying to hide his sins and everything else. Claire was the moral compass to an extent. Now that moral compass was slowly bending towards evil um, over the course of of the five series, but it still worked that you believed there was an ounce of good in her, and. At this point, she's got nothing to bounce off. There's no one to really steer her anymore. She's her own guide. And I just feel like we've lost the dynamic to the show, which meant that the character development is is, is lacking now. It's just a case of dastardly deed onto another dastardly deed. And... I don't. I don't know if it works. Um, this is the end of House of Cards. This does. This does finish it up. Um, I think depending on the success, uh, Netflix might go into spin-off territories or might look at other things. It's a bit of a crying shame. Um, that being said, Robin Wright does give an amazing performance in this. I do think she really does. Yeah, she she fills the stage and then some. Uh, very charismatic, uh, very vulnerable as well in some of the scenes she plays in this. Um, it doesn't quite work for me the way she would look at the camera and talk in the way that Francis would. Um, almost in a way of saying, I'm Francis now. And it, it, it doesn't, something's not working quite yet. It took about four or five episodes for me to actually enjoy this series rather than think about the repercussions of the previous season and it starts to find its own way it does introduce um, the shepherd family this is basically a massive corrupt family that own technology companies that own analytic companies very topical in terms of cambridge analytica uh, but house of cards always plays along uh, a scary mirror to um, the the current global events and it does it again in this and but that being said uh, it probably maybe they should have just canned mm. it. Maybe they shouldn't have even. Maybe they should have just canned it when they didn't cut their losses. Because I don't know. I think this might tarnish the legacy. In my opinion, Do you know what I. My problem with it now is for the last two years, for some reason, House of Cards has felt a little bit uh, irrelevant because it's about these really slick, uh, kind of clever, deep state evil geniuses who are kind of manipulating pulling the strings um and when you compare it to actual american politics which is why it's mirroring it's it's the complete opposite we you've got idiots who are very blatant about what they're doing and the <laughs> corruption so house of cards might paint a scandal and you kind of think well in real life that's not even a scandal anymore because there's so much shit going on just in front of everyone so it almost seems watered down. Um, it, you kind of get the impression it was all based on Deep State, the Clintons. If the, if there is a conspiracy theory about the Clintons, it's, it's like if, if uh, you know, a Trump voter's fears about who Hillary Clinton is and Bill Clinton is, if that was real, that's what House of Cards would look like, isn't it, I think? Um, but it it doesn't quite work anymore because almost you you actually probably find more interesting and corrupt stories if you turned on sort of cnn or one of the fake news channels that trump would send you uh you know, tell you to avoid because the real is has surpassed the fiction in my opinion well i i don't follow american politics uh, politics as close as you do john i just enjoyed the the performances but i totally understand where you're coming from but i'm i'm suckered in just by the the charm of frank underwood and uh, and the, the tales that unveil i will still stand by this the greatest piece of television history in my opinion is the first episode of season two of house of cards because the entire episode frank doesn't talk to the audience and you think oh okay if they decided to not do this as a direction and i'm not going to spoil what happens at the episode but a big dramatic event happens which will he will never shake that that event off it will follow him for the rest of his life and um, it ends with him in a bathroom and he then decides to look in the mirror directly at you and it's like he's staring at your soul <laughs> and he just says in that very calculated under uh, frank underwood voice don't think I don't know you're there. <laughs> and it's just, oh, it just cuts through me. I think it's absolutely beautiful. It's amazing gravitas of performance. Look, I'm not condoning what Kevin Spacey has done off a camera. Um, you know, he's clearly not a very nice person. But on camera, the guy really did emote amazingly. Um, and I, I generally loved, uh, I loved his performance. And to hear that 
you know, they, they did do away with the character. They're doing away with a massive part of the show. Without Frank, do you still have a show? I think you do. But I think the weight of his shadow being over narratively over the the TV show didn't do it justice and um, and yet from my perspective it's going to be a 3 out of 5 I do recommend you watch this um, so you can see and you can have some closure on some certain parts of House of Cards but and Robin Wright she kicks ass in this like she, she's awesome she deserves all the the positive she's going to get um, I don't know how this is going to fare in the community I haven't read any other reviews yet um, but we're, I'm going to go over 3 out of 5 I will withhold my judgment, but I'm still going to definitely persevere because I've invested far too much. John, it has been a fucking while since we've done any features on this podcast, um, mainly because we've had so many things to review, but also, uh, you know, to be frank, Finding the time to do the research and uh, and figure out the right one is always a bit of a struggle. Now, given there's kind of a sequel theme to the news this week in terms of James Cameron listing out all his sequels that he decides he wants to do, and obviously Gladiator 2 actually being greenlit as a sequel, I thought I'd do a bit of research and, and just chew the fat with you, filmy mm. style, about um, sequels which uh, never come to the light of day, but were very, very close, like... Like all it took was one decision, and we would have it would have it would have become movie history. So, here's one for you. So, Forrest Gump. Yeah. Classic movie. I absolutely love that film. For me, it's one of Tom Hanks's best films ever. I used to work at a news organisation. I'm not allowed to say, but Huffington Post. <laughs> and um, we would always talk about our favourite films, and I would say, oh, I loved um, I loved Tom Hanks in in. Forrest Gump, I think it's a, a charm offensive. I love that film. And people would always look at me and be like, that is such a shit film. Why? Anyway, that aside, I think it's an amazing film. Six months after Tom Hanks uh, took home the Oscar, because that film cleared up that year, there was actually a sequel book written. Now, to- uh, Forrest Gump is actually a novel, and it was written by a gentleman called Winston Goon, and he released a sequel to it called Gump & Co., mm-hmm. Um, it you know, follows a similar trope in terms of it just carries on the narrative of what happens to Forrest. Basically, right guy, right time, and blissfully unaware of his, uh, his luck and coming along different things. And a script was put together as this sequel. It was called Cump, uh, sorry, Gump & Co. in terms of people uh, from the original film, his new son, which was the, the kid out of Sixth Sense, I think, and uh, him becoming a father as well as all his different discoveries. So he discovers new coke, and actually helps invent a new form of Coca-Cola. Um, he accidentally is involved in the fall of the Berlin Wall, and it's just it's just some charming historical events they've somehow spliced in. Unfortunately, it never happened. Um, Tom Hanks sat down with Robert Zemeckis, and they gave him, you know, they, they talked about this, and they both looked at each other and was like, nah, this ain't for us, like, no, thank you. And the project never happened. Um, I don't know how to feel about that one. Would you have seen I that? I would have. You've sold it to me right then. I've definitely watched that movie. I think it definitely runs the risk of watering down the whole thing. Like, oh, is it just more of the same kind of... The novelty value of seeing Forrest and all these historic events was, you know, such a charming part of the first one. It might not have carried on to the second, but... I will say, Flinty, I'm glad you don't work with these people who don't like Forrest Gump because that's that's a big red flag for me. If someone doesn't like Forrest Gump, <laughs> they obviously have no soul and uh, you should quit your job if you work with them. <laughs> yeah, if only they could, they could hear me. Actually, that was people were actually like were film critics there as well. Um, anyway, that aside, um, we talked about Gladiator 2 and Ava, a script has been green, uh, greenlit, which is great, but actually back in the day, um, old Russell Crowe uh, was mates with a musician called Nick Cave. He's a rocker in America, and um, Nick Cave also does a bit of writing and does a bit of uh, script writing and asked him to pen a potential sequel. Now, this was an actual script that Russell Crowe paid to have commissioned. It was going to be called Gladiator 2, Christ Killer. The story of this is about Maximus is in purgatory, and he makes a deal with the gods to come back to Earth and lead armies. Yes, that is correct. Come back and lead armies in exchange for killing jesus christ and that means that maximus will go on to become an immortal and in charge of every big uh, conflict in the history of humanity yes this was a thing it was put together now nick sat down with russell crowe after spending a number of weeks putting this story together russell crowe read the story 
clearly saw the error in his ways in commissioning this and went, nah, I don't like it, mate. <laughs> and the film never happened. <laughs> wow. That sounds like try, just I'm going to write the most epic story that could, could, anyone could, could conceive of and try and make a film of. Um, That's basically the storyline to the video game God of War. Like, it's just, it's, it's, it's weird. But um, I don't know, part of me really wanted to have seen this film. <laughs> Yeah, well, I don't know. We're getting a Gladiator sequel now, aren't we? So it'll be funny if elements of that script somehow work their way <laughs> in because, like, they always say nothing ever gets like completely deleted or forgotten about. There's always elements that if things evolve into into one another. Actually, speaking of which, there was a sequel to Seven uh, penned called Eight because they were really imaginative with their titles <laughs> and stuff. And they approached Fincher about the idea of making this and. Um, Fincher literally said, I'd rather put, uh, stab out a cigarette in my eyes. I never want to go over old ground. No, thank you. Not for me. Now, this script has evolved into actually a film that's coming out next year. I think it's called Sol- Solis or Solaris. I can't remember now. But um, it's got Colin Farrell attached to it um, as a a version of what Brad Pitt's character was. Obviously, they've changed names and stuff. But scripts do evolve into other things later on. But um, I'll tell you a film which I'm glad didn't happen because this would have been fucking terrible. So E.T., mm-hmm. classic movie, childhood. You know, it, it warms the coggles to think about the old uh, classic movie there. Now, Steven Spielberg, shortly after the success of E.T., penned a sequel. It was going to be called Nocturnal Fears. The, the concept was that another species of aliens, but not a friendly species, a like carnivorous, horrible species, would crash land back where uh, old Elliot lives because they managed to trace signals from the ship that E.T. originally had and they would kidnap Elliot and E.T. would have to somehow go and save them but apparently it was going to get really dark quite twisted and a bit gruesome as well now Steven Spielberg pens this script put it together himself uh, sat down and reviewed it before he went to go hand it into a studio for for funding uh, support I suppose and thought I'm taking a beloved character here and making it into a fucking weird adult 80s movie, which might have worked, but he, he decided against it, and I think that's probably the best thing. <laughs> yeah. I'd, you do run the risk when you do a sequel. It opens a can of worms, doesn't it? It's an interesting one. Because you could argue, well, what you, you know, you're not taking anything away from the first, but really you are because you're changing the, the story, the overall story. So how will you feel if I said Fight Club sequel? I'd be quite happy, to be honest. Um, I think I, I really did enjoy it. I, I like the book. Um, that's actually one of the books I have. I hate when people go, oh, actually, I really, really preferred the book over the film. And you go, okay, tell me one thing out of the book which was described to you, which wasn't in the film that you would have enjoyed. And they'll they'll either pull a stupid face because they didn't actually read the book or they'll look at you like you're a fucking weirdo for asking that question. Soon we'll be saying, I prefer the podcast to the film, actually because I'm millennial. <laughs> Saying that, the, the amount of detail me and Tom go into on the Infinity War spoiler cast we do for Talk Filming to me, that might actually, uh, that might start becoming a thing. But anyway, speaking of uh, sequels, which might uh, have opened up a can of worms. So, Con Air, I think that's one of Nick Cage's classic <laughs> films. There was actually a sequel um, lined up for this. It was going to be called, get this, Con Airport. And the premise of this film, yeah, right, was John Cusack's character yeah. was going to be in charge of an airport which specialises in the transfer of uh, high-end criminals. So, you know, if someone's moving from one country to another or hostages being moved over or or general political conflicts between countries and the exchange of high-value targets, he was going to facilitate an airport which would facilitate this. Now, obviously, things will go awry and a batch of of rough criminals would take over the airport this never happened uh the original cast was actually apparently tapped to come back to this and they did have options in their contract that if they decided to green light a a sequel they would be obliged to to return but i'm that that premise sounds a bit shit to me to be honest so i'm kind of glad that didn't happen it's the sort of movie that i definitely think wouldn't be ruined it wouldn't ruin the first one i'd quite happily see a second one of that i'd i'd go go along for the ride why not although it sounds like a the same it's like if you copy and paste con air and put it in a slightly different tab doesn't <laughs> like it? like speed it's, on a train yeah speed how many speeds were there uh, 
There were three. Uh, no, no, sorry. Yeah, there was speed on a boat, and then there was under siege. Do you remember that one with um, what's his name, Steven Seagal? It was on a boat, and then just moved it onto yeah. a train. But do you remember in the nineties there was like this <laughs> period where they would like it was seen as right. There's two mediums you get your message out there to people through film and through music, and you make sure that when you have a big blockbuster film, you get a big blockbuster song to go with said film. And they got Leanne Rhymes to do "How Do I Live Without You" for Conair. No relation to the film yeah. whatsoever, <laughs> apart from the loose theme of Nicolas Cage, who, by the way, has incredible hair in that film, and misses his wife. So every time his wife's in a scene, they'll play it in the background. I, I, I kind of miss those days where it had to have a song accompanying it and it had to be a big pop song. Yeah, no, especially a big action movie and then you got this romantic ballad. Um, it, but it worked, didn't it? It worked, you have Good, to admit. It, it would have been the end of the podcast if you told me that Seal, Kiss from a Rose, being linked to Batman Forever wasn't the best <laughs> collaboration in the history of film. That was That's it, We would have been, it would have been over, mate. What about Brian Adams' Everything I Do in Prince of Thieves, Robin Hood's... Well, his ha- can can you ever top feels. it? Like to the point where any Robin Hood film that has come out since then, you can't help going, yeah, but it's not got Brian Adams on it, has it? <laughs> and it hasn't got Morgan Freeman playing uh, an Arab of a Middle Eastern accent, <laughs> who's amazing. Fair enough. Well, I think back to the old Will Smith. Yeah, when Will Smith was kind of at the height of his powers, right? And he basically was doing every big blockbuster going. And he would always do the soundtrack to it. But the soundtrack would always be him just talking about the plot in a rap. <laughs> I kind of <laughs> hope he does that for Aladdin now. But um, but anyway, let's move, move away from 90s music and talk about um, a, a 90s superhero movie which uh, has gained a cult following. In fact, a documentary has been made as a result of this. So uh, Tim Burton, obviously in the 90s, was famous for his dark and twisted films as just as famous as he is now, I guess. But um, he was very famous for directing Batman. He directed the first two Batman movies. His production house then helped and assisted and produced the, the subsequent Batman Forever and the terrible Batman and Robin, but has its place in, in folklore. He was commissioned with his production house to make a Superman movie. And this film was going to be called Superman Lives. And um, Kevin Smith actually penned the scripts to this. Nicolas Cage was cast as the Man of Steel himself, and there's actually pictures of him in the suit um, i don't know if it, it's a mixture it's either absolutely incredible or batshit crazy but literally like this this was a thing and they they actually did change a lot of superman's ethos and um, apparently he was going to have a car similar to the batmobile how weird is that that was clearly just to sell toys because that was the reason why you put stuff in films back then but um, how weird is that <laughs> right a tim burton superman film with nicholas cage at the helm yeah i mean sounds like a recipe for either disaster or genius you can't really tell which which yeah, way that I mean, would go. It, obviously, it never happened for whatever reason. Um, I think the studios just bolted at the idea of Nicolas Cage in the suit. But um, a documentary was made um, about this recently, actually. And I really advise people to watch it because a lot of people have, have said that this is absolutely amazing, the actual insight they get, the act mm. level of access and stuff. The film about a film that never happened, as they would say. But anyway, just to, to wrap it up, one of my, my favourite... Actually, I'll, I'll, before I answer this question, John, what's your favourite movie trilogy? More favorite movie trilogy, I I don't uh, know. Well, mine. I'll hold Toy Story. <laughs> that is a pretty good trilogy. Although that's not going to be a trilogy, very because they're yeah, making well, another for one. For now, it's a but, trilogy, and yeah, the third film makes it an amazing trilogy. The second one's okay, first one's amazing. But anyway, my favorite trilogy. I'm probably going to say is Back to the Future. Um, I absolutely love those films. I can watch them all day. Even the third one, which I'm not really bothered about, Cowboys. But that being said, I've been playing a fuckload of Red Dead Redemption recently and all of a sudden I've got a a soft spot for Back to the Future Part 3. Anyway, there was actually an idea for a fourth and fifth Back to the Future movie. Now, this was going to be kind of a soft reboot. Um, Christopher Lloyd was going to reprise the role of Doc and it was going to be set where a time travel incident will happen and he has crash-landed back in Roswell. And the idea is that he was going to be the reason why the quote-unquote UFOs crash-landed there. Now, it's going to recast the sidekick. They wanted it to become kind of like Doctor Who in terms of the Doc is the Doctor and he will have sidekicks through his time travel adventures. And Sarah Michelle Gellar was lined up to to play the, the sidekick for this. And it, it got pretty close to being made. Um, but Robert Zemeckis and everyone involved in Back to the Future had declined to, to be involved, including Christopher Lloyd, under the, the premise of... Um, Michael J. Fox uh, cannot 
cannot for whatever reason they decided not to go down that route Michael J Fox obviously he's his illness uh, although he's still able to work it would have made it difficult and they said out of respect for Michael he is part of this story he is part of the narrative he is just as much as Back to the Future as the DeLorean is we do not want to do this without him so it never mm. happened that's respect isn't it I've actually got one for you Flinty I want to suggest one of my favourite movies this is Spinal Tap uh, in the age of mockumentary, rockumentaries, music movies, and bands coming up, coming back in their seventies to do farewell tours, I feel like a mockumentary of a really old Spinal Tap <laughs> would be absolutely incredible. Um, so I'm just putting it out there in the world. If someone hears that and makes it happen, you'll be my new favourite person. Um, if not, then I'll have to imagine it. And but in my head, it's. The second greatest movie of all time. <laughs> That's awesome. So, anyway, if you've got, uh, if you know about some sequels which never quite made it to light, or heard some interesting stories, obviously there's tons of tales about different Matrix movies that were promised that never happened. There's tons of Terminator films that were so close. There was that weird Alien sequel which was being penned by the guy who done District Nine, and that fell at the the last hurdle. Would love to hear your thoughts and and links and and anything that gives us a bit of you know bit of uh, fact to chew on with that but get in contact with us on twitter at talk filming to me Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to this as much as we've enjoyed making it, please click on the like, subscribe, follow, whatever button it is that means you get more content from Talk Filming to Me. John, my boy, how can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Descamento, ranting at all kind of political figures. Uh, did you see Jim Carrey's speech at the BAFTA Awards the other night? I loved it. It was amazing. Oh, it's absolutely beautiful. I Every time he opens his mouth or I see a, another painting, he reaffirms... Um, himself as my my favourite actor. He's just brilliant. You know what got me the most excited though, John, mm -hmm. is that he said, "I'm not being funny today. <laughs> I will be funny again." Yes. I was just thinking, we need another Jim Carrey from 1994. You'll be good, but you'll never be Jim Carrey 1994 good. But um, anyway, that aside, thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please leave a comment below uh, or better yet, tell someone about it because the more people that like, the more people that subscribe, the more people that contribute, the more stuff we're able to do. We're able to go to more screenings, get sponsorships and, and everything else in between of that. Anyway, next week we'll be back with usual fun and nonsense as well as everything in between. Stay filmy till next time. Bye-bye. down in the basement. We'll lock the cellar door and baby. Talk filmy to me.